Good morning, friends. So lovely to see you this morning. A special welcome to all the back row moms and dads. And a very special welcome to, I think for the first time visiting this morning, would be little Francois and little Jeremy. Very, very special. Jamie. That's what I said. <laughs> and a very special welcome to Travis's mom, Tracy. Uh, I don't know where you are, maybe in the mom's room. That's lovely to celebrate. Um, well done for singing such a beautiful Afrikaans song. Uh, the wedding that we did of Herat and Lisa, we sang two songs. A Matt Redman song, one of my favorite and then a Retief Berger song, Gottes Liefde. And the Matt Redmond song was fine. The Retief Berger, the, the, the wedding guest came alive. And they belted out Gottes Liefde. And the reason is, is because we love to sing in our own language. And so for us to celebrate different languages is beautiful. Here's something that uh, might be helpful for us. Marissa and the media team, what's really helpful is we, if we sing songs of different languages, just to have the English translation below for those of us whose Afrikaans is not good or we were born in another language, another country, sorry. I'm batting for you, Rob. <laughs> but it's just really helpful as we grow in diversity and in width and breadth that we, these are just little tweaks that we can do to help all of us worship together. Good friends, we are approaching Easter, um, and uh, this week we are looking at Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then next week we are looking at Peter's denial. Then the following week, which is Holy Week, we will be sending you out uh, seven scriptures to pray or to, to read through and to meditate on each day, Monday through to Sunday, and three questions on that. And then Good Friday, we'll come together to look at the crucifixion of Christ, and that will be an interactive moment of you meditating on what Jesus has done, and then Sunday, the great celebration, the resurrection of Christ. So four Sundays, or uh, well, four events uh, today, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week, um, Peter's denial. Uh, then uh, we'll be doing, sending you out a mailer in terms of some scriptures to read through. Uh, the Wednesday before uh, the Easter weekend, <clears throat> in your life groups, you'll actually be talking through this message. And the reason for that is because this coming Wednesday, uh, <clears throat> we'll actually be here praying. And uh, so that's just a heads up, life group leaders. Hope you got all that. It will all be on the website and on mails. As we approach this text, I'd love just to tell you of something what's happening before uh, Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, uh, that is that he celebrates Passover. It's a real celebratory meal. It's a community meal. I imagine it would be an atmosphere of love, of togetherness, of celebration. And so I think there would be joy <clears throat> within the heart of Christ and within the heart of the disciples. And, uh, and then we get this tinge of sorrowfulness as um, Jesus talks about the betrayal, not only of Judas, but of the disciples who would all leave. And that's something of the atmosphere entering into this text. And as we read this text, <clears throat> what I'd love to do is, is for you to think of one or two words 
that typify, or if you had to try and describe the texts or to describe the mood, what emotion or what, what word would you use to describe what's happening in this text? And then I'm just going to ask you at the end to uh, turn to the person next to you and tell them your thoughts. Let's take a moment to pray and, uh, as, we, as we come to this text. And for me, um, this is actually, I think, one of the most difficult texts for us to understand, not academically, but just experientially. This is a poor metaphor, but maybe it might do the best that I can do. If you had to ask a man, <clears throat> what's it like to give birth? Tell me the pain that one goes through when giving birth. The best that a man could do is hope to tell of maybe what he's been told or maybe what he's seen his wife going through. He is not able to experience that. And that's something of a metaphor for this text. We're going to do our best to describe... I must really stop smoking during the week. <coughs> Thank you. That, appreciate that. That's very kind. Thank you so much. The best that we can hope to do is to, from the person telling us, or in this case for us reading the, the, the text, that the Holy Spirit will come and broaden our understanding of what's really come, happening to Jesus. So may I pray for that to happen this morning? Let's pray. Father, as we approached your word this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus into our hearts and our lives this morning. I pray that you would overcome the obstacles that we face or that we have in our hearts this morning to seeing you. And I pray it would be as if you were standing in our midst and we would be able to experience something and taste something and know something of what you experienced. And the result of that would be that we would love you more, delight in you more, serve you more, just as an overflow of seeing you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Won't you read with me Matthew 26, verse 36. Then it said, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So... Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, 
saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Won't you take a moment to turn to the person next to you or behind you and tell them one word that you think this text, one emotion, one feeling that you get from reading or listening to this text? Wonderful friends. The context is the Garden of Gethsemane. It would be a, a, a garden, as far as I understand, on the east of Jerusalem. It would be in a place where Jesus had gone many times to pray. Um, ha- have you ever known an area well where when you're in that area, you, 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 you you know the feel of it, you know the trees, you know the surroundings, it just makes you feel at home. And I think this is where Jesus has gone to pray and to meet with his father. And um, what's really interesting is that um, the word Gethsemane means oil press, where they push the uh, um, olives and they, under pressure, they produce oil. And it's quite appropriate for what we are about to read. And... Um, Matthew uses the words about Jesus to describe him. He says that Jesus um, records Jesus talking about being sorrowful, troubled. Luke uses the word agony. And Jesus uses the word, I'm so sorrowful uh, to death. And he's not saying like we use the, the phrase, it's so hot I could die. You know, that's not, that's not the context. The context is the sorrow feels like death to me. That which is happening to me is crushing me to such a significance I actually feel in reality I am going to die. And so Luke records that actually the sweat was like blood. Um, And this is a very traumatic moment. I don't know if some of you mentioned that word, trauma, um, in your discussions. And so the, the question that perhaps jumps out as you read this text is, why would Jesus say those words? Why would he say, what is happening to me is completely crushing me. It's overwhelming me. I feel oppressed. Um, Why would he suddenly struggle now? Because the scriptures consistently talk about Jesus um, being familiar with suffering. Isaiah 53 summarizes and it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and was acquainted with grief. He was, another translation say, familiar. Jesus knew about suffering. 
And therefore, the question is, if he was familiar with suffering, what's changed? Um, because that was the trajectory of his life. And this passage surprised me because I've actually preached it before, and I think I preached it wrongly. Um, and it surprised me because here are some of the things that I've normally said as to why I assume that it was such a difficult moment. Firstly, some of the reasons that I've thought and even preached is one is that the shock and horror and trauma and shame of a cross is agony. To actually be crucified, to be uh, beaten, to be whipped, to be found naked, that actual uh, shock is traumatic. But I want to suggest that many other people have suffered for uh, their faith. Uh, many people have been martyred even with joy and confidence in their God. So I'm not sure if that's the reason. Perhaps the reason which is quite commonly assumed is because um, the Father and the Son have been eternally together. There is a love relationship that is there that has been eternal, and this would be a separation. And perhaps the agony that Jesus is going through is because of that separation. Perhaps you know of couples who... Um, have been married for 50 or more years. And when the one couple dies, the one spouse dies, the other spouse sometimes dies fairly quickly afterwards. And the family gets together and said, my mom or my dad died of a broken heart. There's something of an agony that, that leads to the, the person actually not wanting to live anymore. And so there is something of a reality there. The thought of being separated from a loving father, Christ Jesus. Perhaps another reason is, is um, what we see, the interpretation of the passion of Christ, uh, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and the, and the devil comes to him and says, how can one man really represent the sins of the world? And there is a demonic oppression that's happening there. And those are all possible and probably contributing factors, but it's actually not what the text says. The text gives us the reason as to why Jesus was in agony. And it's found in the prayer. His request to God gives us the reason. He says, Lord, can you take away? Father, can you remove this? What's the word that he asked to be taken away? For three points in a trip to Mauritius. He asked for the cup to be taken away. And that cup is a metaphor throughout um, the scriptures, is a metaphor for God's judgment upon evildoers, upon nations, and especially Israel. And so I've got a text for you just to confirm that. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord. The cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. And so what Jesus is asking the Father to do is to say, this cup which is your anger towards me, I'm asking you to take it away. And I think what this text is teaching us is that this is the first time that Jesus is beginning to experience the anger of God towards him. 
When it says he began to feel, it means that before that moment, he wasn't feeling that experience. And so what words can we use to describe the anger of God? And the prophet Isaiah describes what Jesus endured from his father. And here are some of the words that he used. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, slaughtered. And Jonathan Edwards, a 17th century theologian, says this about this moment. He says, possibly for the first time, Jesus was getting a vivid realization of the anger of God. Let's have a look at the, the three prayers. I'm going to put up Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel for you just to have a look at the three prayers just to shed some more light upon this suffering. Matthew's gospel says this, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. Mark's gospel says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Luke's gospel says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not mine, but yours will be done. The prayer is essentially the same thing, and it centers around a cup and will. What it clear is, what's clear is, is Jesus not asking to abandon his mission. The purpose of Jesus being sent is to reconcile sinners back to a loving Father. He's not saying that. He's not asking even to avoid the cross, the pain and suffering physically of a cross. He's saying, this anger which I'm for the first time experiencing me is bigger than I can handle. And is there any way, Father, that we can still do the same thing? We can still reconcile sinful man to a loving God without your anger coming upon me. Is there any way that we can remove your anger from me? And so those three different Gospels record the same thing. And they start to open up our eyes when the whole purpose of Christ is to uh, take upon the sins of the world. And then when he starts to experience what that's really like, he says, Father, is there any way that you can remove this from me. And maybe for the first time, certainly in my life, at the age of 52, I'm starting to get a realization of what it actually means of the anger of God. I've grown up with those words, the anger of God, the wrath of God. But I think they're starting to carry some more weight when we see them actually impact the Son, Jesus. Almost everyone I speak to battles with this aspect of God's character, and particularly people who don't believe in Christ. A God of love, yeah, we love that God. A God of forgiveness, yes. A God of mercy, absolutely. But a God of anger, what type of a person believes in a God who punishes? But if we take a moment to think about a God who does not move towards justice and act out justice, if we look at the wickedness upon the world right now, 
if we just take one example, which is the w wicked men um, in Ukraine. We don't have to look far to say that's evil. It's not a political discussion. Evil is evil. When men kill women and children, that's evil. Yeah? It's wicked. You can even take it to a much smaller example. When actors slap other actors, <laughs> that's, that's not good. If we just serve a God who just said it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter, it's, it's, you know, I'm just going to forgive and forget. Yeah. If we serve a God who, do, who, who, who sweeps consequences under the carpet, what hope do we have for this wicked world that we live in and for our wickedness that lives in our hearts? Justice and love are twins. You can't have one without the other. And so what Jesus is beginning to experience in the garden, and the reason why I love this text, friends, is because I hope it's starting to prepare our heart for this, the beauty and wonder of this Easter weekend. What he's beginning to experience in the garden is the justice of God coming upon him. It's God putting all things right, except he's not putting them right with the people who deserve it. He's putting it right with his son. And more and more I start to find that these scriptures make more sense to me personally. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what he's experiencing. That's what he is actually currently going through that is crushing him. The iniquity of you and me laid upon him. Verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. In the garden of Gethsemane, he is starting to experience the anger of the father towards sin. And this verse starts to become beautiful to us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, or we can say, for my sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin. This moment in the garden is actually the first movement of God placing the sin upon Christ. Martin Luther says this about Jesus. He says, this is the, the, the way that he views Jesus in terms of the Garden of Gethsemane. To be looked upon God as if he were all the sinners in the world and as if he had committed all the sin that had ever been committed by his people, for it was all laid on him. Vengeance due for all be poured. He must be the center of all vengeance and bear away upon himself what ought to have fallen upon the guilty sons of men. This is what's special upon, about Easter, and this is why we celebrate and we join with millions of people around the world. The cup of God's anger, which was meant for you and meant for me, wasn't given to you and me. It was given to Jesus. 
and something of the weight of what that meant, this text begins to help us see. And so I don't know about you, but Jesus is becoming increasingly beautiful right now. <laughs> when we start to unpack the enormity, because if someone says, comes up to you and say, says to you, hey, and mentions you by name, everything that you owe financially, you know, you know or let me, comes up to you and says, your debt's forgiven, you might want to know, well, what debt? You know, is it my debt to the receiver of revenue? Uh, tell me what debt, because the, the extent to which you, you, you're prepared to forgive my debt is the extent of my gratitude towards you. And this passage starts to show the width and the height and the breadth and the enormity of what Christ has done. At this point, as we read this text, Jesus becomes like no other man. And the Christian faith, like no other faith, many men have sacrificed and given their lives for the sake of others. But no man, but no man, but no man has taken upon himself the anger of God but Jesus Christ. And that's why when people say all roads lead to God, you, you, you have to say, I can't agree with that, not because I want to be argumentative, but because you diminish what Christ has done. You make a mockery of what actually happened, of the weight of the world, the anger of God being placed upon the Son. And so why is it so important, friends? Why is it important that we each year reflect upon the Garden of Gethsemane? It's because I think we forget the extent of the love of the Father towards us, yeah? We forget or, or sometimes it gets diluted. How do you know this morning, friends, if you are truly loved and truly valued and truly accepted, how can you measure the height and the breadth and the width of the Father towards you this morning? Here's how you measure. You measure by looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, Daddy, my Father, would you take this cup away from me? It's expressed in action. The Father's infinite love towards you, the Son's infinite love towards you, the Spirit's infinite love towards you is expressed in this moment. And Jesus actually, at the end, when he rises up and says, rise, let us you know, move forward. The, the hour that the Son is to be prayed is at hand. When he says that, that's an act of infinite love towards you and infinite love towards the Father. And so I said to you, and I use a very poor metaphor, that our ability as men to understand the pain of childbirth is limited because we cannot experience it. And I said, so our ability to really step into 
what Jesus has done is limited. We'll never be able to do that. But I hope the Holy Spirit is just beginning to um, open up your hearts in appreciation and value and wonder and praise of what the Father has done in giving the Son and what the Son has done in yielding to the Father and what the Holy Spirit has sustained. There's another temptation going on in this passage. It's a lot smaller. It's not the main one. It's pretty insignificant compared to the main one. And it's the temptation of the three disciples because Jesus says, stay awake. And uh, I know if I was there, I would definitely be the guy who's falling asleep. But what is the temptation? Because he says, pray, keep, keep awake, keep watch, and pray that you don't enter into temptation. What is the temptation? Is it that, you, you know, not to, to fall asleep? And I think the temptation is, it includes that, but I think the temptation is that under pressure, when circumstances start to press you like that olive press, would you not fail? Would you not give in to that pressure? Would you remain strong? Therefore, before that pressure comes, would you pray? Would you stay awake? Would you be alert to the trial that's coming, the temptation that is both now and to come? And they slept. And the question is, well, did they pass that trial? Under pressure, did they stay strong? and firm in their faith towards Jesus? Well, the same passage gives us the answer, Matthew 26, 56, be on the screen. Then all the disciples left him and fled. There's the answer. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so the passage brings us two groups of people who had undergone trials. Jesus the temptation or the trial to not yield to the anger of the Father and the disciples, the temptation to not run away. And the disciples failed and Jesus yielded in submission. And so there's so many applications from this text as I come into land. We could take hours on just the wonderful applications. And I just want to bring two as uh, uh, hopefully gifts to you. And the first one is framed within the second one. The first one is bordered within the second one. I think this text gives us a warning uh, for you and I as we follow Christ. I think that as we move forward, chances are, that pressure for us to follow Christ and to actually obey Him in every area of our life, I think is going to increase. And part of our role as elders is to equip you and to train you that we stand firm. There's a great likelihood that the winds of the age of today will blow across the bows of our lives and produce such pressure that we too will buckle. We too will flee because our we too will flee because our will to survive and place our lives and our children at the center of everything is so much stronger than what we dare to imagine. And so there's a warning to us from this text 
that we're to stay awake, that we're to be found in prayer saying, hey, Father, would you align my heart with your heart? But the warning is not the main thing. The warning is framed or found within this amazing hope. And this is the main point of the text, and I hope I've done an adequate job of keeping the main thing the main thing. This is the hope. The magnitude, the breadth, the height, the width of the love of God towards you is still in the midst of your failure. You see, because Jesus yielded to the Father in the midst of the failure of the disciples. Yeah? And the same love towards you is not because of your strength, but even in the midst of your failures, the love of the Father is towards you. Beautiful. This is the the scripture that Colin read this morning. He says, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or another way of putting it is, whilst we were still failures, Christ died for us. Or another way of putting it is, whilst we continue to fail, Christ died for us. I read this week that the church of Christ is a community of forgiven failures. It's beautiful, friends. And how did that community arise? It arose because of the magnificence of what Christ did for us. We recognize that we might fail and buckle, yet we're confident of God's gracious hand when we repent. Because of his great love that reaches into our buckled kneels, we are not afraid, but we carry on with a confident hope. The power of of Father is sufficient to overcome whatever failure we have because of what Christ has done. And my encouragement as you go into this week, and as I... um, hand over to Colin and ask the musos to come forward. The meditation that I'm asking you to reflect upon is the height and the width and the breadth of the love of the, the Son that endured the anger of the Father because of you. Amen, friends. And we stand as we respond to worship. Yeah, friends, isn't it wonderful that we can uh, stand here knowing that, you know, our salvation or the love, the relationship with God is not dependent on us. You know, every time I think about it, every time I fail, I mean, in just to this day, I can think of stuff I failed of, things, things that I've thought of. And already I always say, thank you, God, for that. Thank you that this relationship, this love, it's not dependent on me because I am I'm a fraud. You know, every time I go to work every day, doubt myself. But the beauty is we know that he has done it for us. And again, keep on emphasizing that thing. He, does, he didn't leave us alone. He leave us with the Holy Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to remind us 
that you are not a failure. Don't listen to that voice of the devil because he's been defeated. The victory is ours and that's what we can celebrate. So let's just close with worship and trust God for it.